right, we are here. All right, guys, I'm gonna start off right from the beginning showing you the video that prompted today's discussion and is going to guide the range of topics that we discuss. So let me show it to you and then I'm gonna explain uh, where it kind of came from and why I'm talking about it today. Here you go. There is no scriptural basis for long periods of time in the creation week, none. Um, and there are some very significant problems when you do that. For one thing, putting death before sin. And I've made this argument before, and I made it to him at a PM I sent him. Um, so I won't repeat the whole thing, but essentially, putting death before sin makes, A, the world that God made full of death, um, and the world that God calls very good full of death. It also means that the curse of sin did absolutely nothing other than bring in human death, which is not true because it, the creation was cursed as well. Um, it also means that... Uh, that depending on which view you take, that there may have been human death before sin, before Adam. So, all those things are fundamentally incompatible with Scripture. And not only are they fundamentally incompatible with Scripture, um, they do irreparable damage to things like atonement, to things like the doctrine of sin, to things like why Christ had to come and die. All right, now if you have been following my channel for some time, about three months ago, I responded to the first part of this video. So let me give you a little bit of context. This is a video made by In His Image. It is a response to a discussion that I had with Apologeti on the age of the earth and uh, looking at what does Genesis have to say as far as young earth creationism and old earth creationism. And so In His Image made this video a few months ago and um, he uh, responded and, and kind of challenged some of my views and some of the comments that I made. And I did uh, a first kind of response, uh, I guess. And I tried to get through the whole video, his response video. I tried to kind of get through the whole thing, kind of talk through where I thought he maybe uh, representing me well and where he didn't represent me as well. And I couldn't finish and I was left to this last part. And I knew that this was a huge topic, a controversial topic that I wanted to spend some more time on. And I also was wanting to get him on the show for the conversation. And so I reached out to In His Image a few times um, and in trying to, to set up a time where we could talk through this topic as well as the others. And unfortunately, just with schedule conflict and all the busyness, it just didn't work out. And so here I am a few months later, finally coming back to address this issue, more specifically to answer the questions and challenges with death before the fall. This is one issue that many will say is one of the biggest issues that is raised by young earth creationists um, refusing to kind of accept the old earth view, that if you accept the old earth view, if you allow for long periods of time, as mentioned in this video by In His Image, then all of a sudden you have a big issue that you have to deal with, which is how do you understand animal death before the fall? Because if long periods of time are in Genesis, uh, then you have animals created millions of years before humans, before Adam sinned, they had to have been dying. And, and how do you deal with this and, and God's creation, which is seen as very good. So that's going to be the topic. Thanks for being here, Slam RN and Kelvy. It's good to see you both. Um, and anyone else, if you have questions, if you're watching this, um, start sending those in. And I want to talk through those. My name is Ryan Polly. I didn't even introduce myself. My name is Ryan Polly. I haven't been here for a little bit because things are getting crazy. I My firstborn child is going to be due here in a two weeks from yesterday. So we're getting very close to some big life changes. And so videos are going to be, well, 
I don't know. They're going to be coming when they come. But thanks for sticking with me for all of you are here. Again, my goal with this channel is to get you to think deeply about what Christianity teaches, what we should believe, how to defend that well, and then faithfully living it out in the culture. And so today's discussion, uh, how do we raise, how do we see science and faith going together and understanding the Genesis account of creation. And so that is going to be the topic that we're jumping into. So thank you so much. And by the way, the, the comments on the beer coming in right now, it's going to be gone next week. Uh, so maybe the next video or the one after you will, well, uh, I will look different. Let's just leave it at that. And so it has gotten a bit wild. It's coming off soon. So uh, not to shock you, but some people may think you're watching a new channel or some new host, but nope, it is still going to be me. So anyways, um, talking about this video, uh, I want to kind of work through the points that he made. And we're going to be diving into scripture because the issue here is what does scripture teach? What does scripture teach about the length of days? Now, I'm not going to get into that as much. He, he does have a short comment here at the very beginning about that there's nothing in scripture that points to the days being long periods of time. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, as well as then mostly looking in at the problem then that is created, that if you stretch these days out to long periods of time, you now have animal death before the fall. And so we're going to look, what does scripture have to say about death? What does scripture have to say about animal death? What does scripture have to say about sin and the cross? And he said the doctrine of the atonement and why Jesus had to come. And so we're going to be diving into our Bibles this evening. If it is evening for you, I don't know when you're watching this, but that is going to be the plan that we are going to talk about. Now, I recently did a video on my TikTok account. If you have TikTok, you guys can follow me there, but I recently did a video responding to an Answers in Genesis comment that says that there's, uh, the guy said in the video that there's nothing in the text that suggests a long period of time. It is only things imported from outside the text, trying to add millions of years into scripture. Now in his image here in this comment, and I don't know why my notes are not pulling up here really quick. Um, he makes a similar comment. He says that there's no scriptural basis for long periods of time. So what I want to do is I want to pull up the Bible and I want to look at something. So in this short TikTok video that I gave, I gave two reasons. I think there's others, but I gave two short reasons for why I think scripture, uh, there is a scriptural basis for long periods of time. Now, the first one uh, that I gave here is that in Genesis day three, starting here in verse 11, it says, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit bearing trees or fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kind and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each surrounding according to its kind and god saw that it was good and there was evening and morning the third day now one reason why i point to this as being a biblical scriptural reason to support a longer period of time is based on what the text says this is the only day where it talks about something growing, right? The ground is sprouting forth, right? And, and, and so the other days, like God created animals and they roamed the earth. God created Adam and he began tending to the garden. Uh, God created man and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, right? And so there's, in scripture, we see this understanding of God creating and then the animals and the people just start doing what they do. This is the only day here in the Genesis account that says, let the earth sprout vegetation, where the plants are being brought forth from the earth. They're growing out of the ground. And so my point here is we know how long it takes for plants to grow. So if the plants are growing out of the ground, which is what the text says here, then that would take longer than 24 hours. 
Now, as I mentioned in the video, they got a lot of pushback. I said, you know, uh, the young earth creationist response would be, well, God did a miracle. It's kind of like miracle growth, like fully formed plants grew out of the ground at a rapid speed. And so it still could happen in 24 hours. Now, my response to this is this, is the only reason you need a miracle here is because you recognize that what it's saying took place could not happen in 24 hours. Now, again, some pushback. All right. Some pushback that I got on this is saying, well, but it's all a miracle. True. This is all miraculous. The fact that God said, let the earth bring forth vegetation, that is miraculous. But again, we're, we're asking the question, how did God create? And I think a case can be made that God, excuse me, God creates differently based on the the context based on how he tells us that he creates. He doesn't have to do everything the same. So I got some comments that said, okay, so if you think that the plants take, need time to grow out of the ground, do you think Adam sat in the mud for nine months? No, I don't think Adam sat in the mud for nine months. I also don't think Adam was created as a baby because it said that he was created and now be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Like you have to be an adult to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to take care of the garden, to do all the things that Adam did. But I think, I, I and I made the point, and, and I think, you can look at the miracles of Jesus. For example, did Jesus heal all blind people the same? No. There's examples where Jesus just speaks. I, you begin to see and they begin to see. There's times where Jesus spit in the guy's eyes and then he could see moving trees and then he spits again, right? And then also now his vision clears up. It takes like a two-stage process to get him to see again. Another example where Jesus spits in the ground, makes mud, puts the mud on the guy's eyes and says, now you have to go wash in the pool, the pool of Siloam. And so we said, well, did Jesus need the mud to heal the person's eyes? No, he didn't. Could he have just said, see, and they see? Well, yes, he did it. Did Jesus even need to be there to get them to see? No, he didn't. Jesus didn't need to be there. And we saw miracles in the New Testament of Jesus not even being in the same location as people and was able to heal and perform those miracles. So why does Jesus do this differently? I don't know. I don't know why one time Jesus spits in his eyes, another time he spits in the ground and makes mud, and another time all he says is just see. He doesn't need the mud. But saying Jesus used the mud to heal. That's the process that he used. Did Jesus need the water in the jars first to turn the water into wine? Or could he have just made wine appear in the jars? Well, he could have just made wine appear in the jars. Did this somehow take away from his power? That's a comment that I got is, but this takes, you're taking away from Jesus's power. You're denying his power to say that plants needed to grow naturally. No, not at all. It is still a powerful, miraculous act for God to create the plants to begin with. The issue here is we're saying, what does the text say? And so my first kind of point in saying, is there a scriptural basis for long periods of time? I want to say, look, Genesis chapter one, day three seems to be, or could be at least the way that is written, a scriptural basis for a long period of time. It says that the plants grew out of the ground. If they grow, like it says it's they're growing, then that would take longer than 24 hours. To suggest that it somehow was a quick grow or they grew fully formed is importing something into the text that is not here. Now, this is going to come up again when we talk about death before the fall. And it's important to point out is that oftentimes old earth creationists are accused of reading things into the text. You're trying to input millions of years in the text. You're reading things into the text that, that young earth creationism is often the straightforward, plain reading of the text. But I think with this one, and we'll see again with death before the fall, 
I think this is a form of reading into the text. It doesn't say that the plants appeared fully formed. It says that they grew. All the other animals and humans seems to suggest they were fully formed. This one seems to be different, maybe longer than 24 hours. The other example is day six, right? When you look at all the things that God did on day six, and this is the second reason I gave for what I think is a scriptural basis for long periods of time. Look here at day uh, six. There's no bush of the field in the land. No small plant in the field had sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There's no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight for food and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then we see that the rivers were flowing through the garden. Then God took man in verse 15, put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Then the Lord God commanded the man saying, you surely eat of every tree, but not the, uh, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for you shall surely eat of this. You will die. Then God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper. Now the ground, he formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought to him so that he would name them. And whatever the man called every living creature was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds, the heavens, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no found a helper fit for him. Then God caused a good deep sleep. God creates Edom, Eden, or sorry, Eve. In the Garden of Eden, he creates Eve. And then he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So look here at everything that is taking place on day six. If this is a 24 hour period, this is a lot. God creates Adam, creates the Garden of Eden, mixing up Eve and Eden for some reason, puts Adam into the Garden of Eden. Adam tends to the garden. Then God brings all the animals to Adam. He then names all the animals and gets to the point where he's like, oh my goodness, I feel alone. Like there's no one here. God wants to create a helper suitable to him. And when God finally creates Eve, Adam responds and says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's kind of a weird statement to make if he'd only been alone without another human for 12 hours, 18 hours, even 24 hours, right? If he just spent one day with the animals tending the garden, like there's a lot going on. He's pretty busy to be like, finally, at last. Again, I think that this is to me a biblical reason, a biblical justification, a scriptural basis for at least long periods of time with day three and day six. There's a lot that is going on here to fit this into 24 hours. And so that in short is this. Now, in the video then, in his image response, and it says, look, if you stretch these days into long periods of time, and this is the topic that I want to discuss with you guys here. If you stretch these into long periods of time, then you have death before sin. And this is a problem with long periods of time. The world that God calls good is full of death. Now, I am going to defend my position. I personally do. I, maybe I didn't tell this to you early. I personally do believe that there was animal death before human sin. That is my personal belief. And I will defend that. I have a burden of proof to defend my belief. However, I want to push against something here really quick. I want to push against the argument that says animals did not die. 
because we are all taking these presuppositions to the text. And I think that those who say, look, there was no animal death before the fall. I think that this is a presupposition taken to the text that is not taught in the text. And so my challenge to those who are maybe listening that maybe hold this position, maybe think I'm crazy for believing that there is animal death before the fall. Here's my challenge. Where does the text explicitly say that animals did not die before the sin of Adam? Where does it say this in Genesis, maybe one to three? Where does it say this in other parts of scripture? Where does it say that animal death is a result of sin, that animals did not die from scripture? I mean, before sin, where does scripture say that? And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think this is the second part where it's not, this is importing something into the text, which I have been accused of often doing, of reading millions of years into the text and not taking the plain, straightforward reading of the text. So this is my, kind of my pushback back. It's like, okay, why are we even starting from this presupposition that there was no animal death? And now I have all the burden of proof to prove that there was animal death. Why are we starting with this as the baseline? The person who's saying that there was no animal death before the fall also has a burden of proof that they have to justify biblically. And so I want to, uh, you know, I'll, I kind of point out and I'll say that like, there is nothing in Genesis. This is my position. And, and you can comment in the, the, in the live chat if you want to kind of respond to this and, and challenge my statement here, but that there's nothing in Genesis that suggests animal pain and death is a result of sin. It's not in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. It's also not in Romans chapter 5, which we will look at here in a little bit. It's not there. And so I would say this is an assumption. Now, why is this an assumption? Now, I want to read you something. Uh, Answers in Genesis, uh, a very common young earth creationist uh, group founded, you know, run by Ken Ham. They have an article, right? So if you're going to hold this idea that there was no death before the fall, they have an article titled, Did Adam Step on an Ant Before the Fall? Right? So it's like, well, did any grass die? Did the leaves fall off the tree? Uh, what was Adam eating? Uh, did he not eat during that day? Did something not die? And it's like, did he possibly accidentally step on a beetle or an ant or something? And so there's an article that they have for this. Now, I want to read you uh, a couple parts of this article and, and the reasons why they give for why there was no death before the fall. And uh, here's what the article says. And I'll, I'll attach this into the... Uh, description below on YouTube uh, for those who want to access this article yourself. It is told, it's titled, Did Adam Step on an Ant Before the Fall? from uh, AnswersInGenesis.org. Uh, here's what it says. The issue of death before sin is significant because it's a question of biblical authority, because the idea undermines the very foundation of the gospel. This is also a statement, if you remember back to the intro video, that in his image made, uh, that it's an undermining of the gospel, the doctrine of the atonement, doctrine of sin. Why did Jesus even have to come? And then they go on to say, if we take God at his word, it is abundantly clear that death, and this would include animal death, is the consequence and byproduct of sin that was not part of the original question, creation. Here are just a sampling of verses that clearly make this point. So you notice they say, if we take God at his word, it's clear that death, including animal death, is a result of sin. And that's my challenge is why are we including animal death here? Well, the first reason they give, and a very common one, and the one given by in his image as well, as he said, the world that God calls good is full of death. And they say here, like this is this was a perfect creation. We see that all throughout Genesis at the end of each day, that God calls this good, God calls this good, this is good. 
and he finishes everything and says, this is very good. Now, here's again, a, kind of a, a, something that we have to consider. We all are approaching this text, as I said, with presuppositions. Another presupposition we have is what we mean by good and very good. What do we mean? What do we think the text is saying when God says this is good? We assume it means no death. But where do we get that from in the text? Right? Our, our tendency is to translate God saying creation is very good to mean creation is perfect. And a perfect creation would not have death. Well, why not? Where does the text say that a perfect creation does not have death? And so I think this is a deeper theological conversation that has to take place if we're going to answer this question and kind of respond to this challenge is, what do we mean by good? What is good? And we talk a lot about this more so when we discuss the problem of evil. But God, in his nature, is the standard of good. God is good. So if God is creating something and he is good, then the thing that he is going to make is also good. So put very simply, here's kind of my pushback a little bit. If God created our world with animal death, then that would be good because that's how God created it to be. And he is good. He is the standard of good. Right? It's kind of like, you know, who are we to, to, to question God and what he has done saying that God, you are not good because this has death. If God is the one who makes things good and God is good and he's created this way, who are we to challenge that? Who are we to push against that? So what we have to recognize and how we understand, right? So when I teach this to my students and I say, okay, what is a good use of a cell phone? What is a good use of my water bottle? What's a good use of my computer? It's hard to know what a good use of something is or whether something is good if you don't know the purpose. The purpose. What is the purpose of a phone? Well, the purpose of a phone is to call, to communicate, to check email now, to take pictures, to listen to music. There's lots of purposes now with our smartphones. So if you're using your phone for the purpose in which it was created, then that is good. If I use my phone as a paperweight, if I use my phone as a hammer, if I use my phone as a rock to skip rocks across the lake, that would not be good. I'm not using it for the purpose in which it was created to be used. And so what we recognize as being good is recognizing, is it doing what it was created to do? Or are you using it for the purpose that it was created to be used? That is one way that we know whether something is good or whether we are using it for good. And so a question that has to be come back to in order to address this very difficult issue of death before sin is this. What was the purpose of creation? What was the purpose of creation? It's only when we answer this question of what was the purpose of creation, then we can then explain, is what it was doing good? If what it was doing was fulfilling its purpose, then it is good. Now, you can make the argument that any sort of viable ecosystem needs animal death. Birds need to be eating insects. Um, and this would then be good. So if God is creating a system for which animals can flourish and survive and grow and do all these things, and to do that, they need to eat each other, then God can call his system that is doing exactly what he created it to do good. 
Again, you also look at what is the purpose of creation? Well, the purpose of creation is for humans to be able to grow, to flourish, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it, and to be in relationship with God. And some make the argument that this goodness is best fulfilled. The Great Commission is best fulfilled because we have fossil fuels in the ground that allow us to travel and to fly and, and to get to places to share the gospel and to make sure more people hear about who God is. And this would not be possible without those fossil fuels. Where do the fossil fuels come from? From decaying animals. And so if God is creating animals so that they would then die to create the fuels that makes it possible for us to travel the world and to spread the gospel, then there's a goodness to this as well. Now, I think you can look, for example, at Psalm chapter 104. And Kelby, I'll get to those questions and those comments here in just a moment. Psalm 104, right? Some call this the creation psalm, talking about how majestic and wonderful God is for the creation he has made. All right, I think in the ESV, you know, the whole beginning is, Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. It talks about the wonderful things that God has done and stretching out the heavens and the clouds and the wings of the wind and, and all this sort of stuff. And he set the earth on its foundations and it goes over praising God for the wonderful things that he's done. But notice in verse 21, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. Now, some will argue that this is a creation psalm. This is describing the Garden of Eden. And so here you have lions roaring for their prey inside the Garden of Eden. Now, even if that's not the case, though, you still have God giving them their prey. If God has designed lions to eat other animals, and then God gives them their prey for them to consume, and they do that, then who are we to say this is not, this is not good? God has designed a system. And if that system is for us to know him and to follow him, then who are we to say that this is not good? Now, the answers in Genesis article goes on and say, look, sin, death is a consequence of sin. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sharing that article right there. Let me come back here. And so, um, so what are the consequences of sin? Right? It says death is the consequence of sin. And Kelby, I see that you put this here. He says, curse be the ground. I count that. And of course, Paul through one man, death entered. One could argue that only means human death, I guess. And so that's, again, kind of this question. It comes to the answers in Genesis article that we're going to talk about here is what does Romans have to say? So let's open up Romans here uh, really quick. Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's nothing in Romans chapter five that says death to all creation, death to all creatures. It says death spread to all men. Sin affected men. God told Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Again, not the physical death in the sense that he didn't die instantly, but a spiritual death, God, Adam was separated from God and eventually would die physically because of this. And then Jesus, it's like an Adam comes and rescues us from the consequence of death. And so this is talking about death to humans. Death came to all men because all sinned. Now, Genesis chapter three is also a very common one about, okay, well, what about curse be the ground, right? And so now look at the curses again. So the snake tempts Adam and Eve. And, and we look, uh, here we go. Um, Eve says, okay, this is what happened. Now God responds to the serpent. You've done this. Cursed are you above all livestock 
the beast of the field. So God puts a curse upon the serpent. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, her offspring. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. He shall be ruled over you. So there's the curse to the woman. To Adam, he said, because of you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So the ground gets cursed. Now, again, people say this then includes animal death. It doesn't say that. It just says cursed is the ground. Now Adam is toiling to produce his fruit. It says right here, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. But the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. And so again, th these are some common things. And I, uh, if you look at it here, it says cursed is the ground. That doesn't directly state that this is animal death that comes as a result of cursing the ground. It is cursing to Adam. To Adam, it says cursed is the ground. Now you're going to toil to produce the food that you do, and you're going to sweat to produce what you have, and you're going to end up returning to the ground from which you were taken. And so what we see in this article is, you know, a couple things. Again, is a perfect creation, meaning no sin or death? Well, if God created animals to die and to eat each other, and then they do that function, then God can call that very good. Now, some will then say, but death is never good. Where in the Bible does it say that death is good? To which I kind of say in one sense, the entire New Testament calls the death of Jesus good. We celebrate Good Friday. We recognize that the death of Jesus was a good thing that then conquered death, which was the separation that we have from God. And so we celebrate this. We look forward to this every week. We, we recognize this every year. This idea of Jesus' death is the good news. And Acts talks about how God predestined this before the creation of the world for Jesus to come and die. So before God even creates anything, he knows what is going to happen. And he has predestined for Jesus to come and die for this death to be part of the creation that he has predestined. And then he says, this is very good. So I think not only does scripture call death, the death of Jesus, a good thing, Therefore, who are we to say that this animal death, if God is creating it to function that way, is not good? Again, again, the second point here is that death is sin's consequence. Yes, death of humans. But where does the text say that animal death is a result of sin's consequences? Answers in Genesis then goes on and says that the third point here is that we live in a cursed world. Okay, yes, the ground is cursed. It groans from the weight of sin. But again, where does it say that this also includes animals. I don't think that, again, animals are included. If you're saying, but this includes animals, the text doesn't say it. That is reading something into the text that is not actually there. So the world that God calls good is full of death. Let me come over here to the comments here. Let me see if I see some. Um, uh, Kelby, you kind of commented in on this. It says, that's quite a Calvinistic view. I don't disagree that every single thing God does must be good. But I cannot say that means God can do something objectively immoral or evil. Uh, I wouldn't say that God can do something objectively immoral or evil. Um, I'm just saying that what God does, right, and, and that God, what flows from him, God's moral commands. God cannot 
command evil. God cannot make evil good. And so out of his good nature, God cannot do anything that contradicts his nature. God can't lie. He can't steal. He can't cheat. He can't die. God cannot do anything that contradicts his good nature. So from out of his good nature, which is the standard of goodness, flows his moral commands, which reflects. So God is love. That is an essential attribute of God. So the actions that are loving, caring, loving are good. Therefore, we have good moral duties as far as care for your neighbor, to love your neighbor as yourself, to hug people, to watch out for people. Those sort of things become good actions as they reflect God's nature. And so that's kind of how I would explain it. And so um, I, I think that possibly, uh, hopefully that helps there to address that point. Um, now then going on. Uh, to what in his image says here then in the video. So he says, okay, there's no scriptural basis for long periods of time. In the last video, part one that I addressed, I kind of talked about that a little bit, as well as I gave you the two points here. He says, death before sin is a problem with long periods of time. Well, it's only a problem if you see that animal death is a problem. And he says it is because it calls the world good. But if that's how God created it to be, then I think that we, who are we to say that it's not good? Uh, it says, uh, then the curse of sin then, did absolutely nothing except bring human death. Now think about this for a second. The curse of sin did nothing except bring human death. Now, if that's true, that the curse of sin did nothing else except bring human death, does that mean it's like not a big deal? No, that's huge. That is the separation from us to God, our father, in the close relationship that he has designed us to have. So even if the curse of sin only brought about human death and human separation from God, that's massive. That's a big deal. And that's exactly why Jesus came to conquer that death. And so this is not this trivial thing, like kind of how it was presented a little bit that like, well, if the curse of sin um, then did absolutely nothing except bring human death, but that's still a big deal if that's true. But as we see here in Genesis chapter three, that's not the only thing that it did. There is the increased pain in childbirth. There is the, uh, the, the curse that is put upon the snake. There's a curse of the ground and there's the curse of Adam and to the toils that he has, as well as the death that flows from that. So even if you're going to argue that there was animal death before the fall, because the text doesn't say there wasn't, then it still is a big deal. It still is a big curse. Now let's come back to Genesis chapter three and looking at the curse. Here's another reason why I think it's possible that you can say that death being part of God's good creation is not bad. Um, look at the curse put upon Eve. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing In pain. You shall bring forth children. Now, people often make this argument. I think it's a persuasive argument that it says that her pain will increase well, how do you increase from, like, it doesn't make much sense to say from zero to something is increasing. No, that's your pain will start or you will begin to experience pain. But to say that your pain will increase suggests that there was pain before the curse of sin. And I think that you can argue for that because again, I don't think all pain is wrong. We recognize the goodness of pain when it produces a greater good. Right. You know, my child is going to be born soon. And if we, you know, do all the vaccines and he gets all the shots and he goes, like, there's going to be pain in that. 
you know, and I always tell the story of my brother and his kid and they vaccinated his little boy and uh, having to hold down his boy and screaming and crying. Oh my goodness. What are you doing? Why are you not saving me from this doctor causing pain upon me? It's like, Hey, this is for your greater good. There's a reason you don't understand. You're, you're kind of ignorant in the sense your, your, your knowledge is limited. You don't understand. But if you understand, you realize I'm doing this for your good. God also created us with nerves to feel pain because pain is good. Like imagine if you felt no pain, you go in the kitchen, you put your hand on the hot stove and your skin begins to scald off, but you have no pain receptors. And so you don't actually feel that your hand is burning until all of a sudden you look and your hand is just, all the skin is just melted off your hand. Like, no, pain is a good thing. It teaches you that there's something wrong. When I woke up one day and I had pain in my stomach, I quickly went, something is wrong. Imagine the day I woke up and I had appendicitis. My appendix was going bad. It was about to explode. Imagine if I woke up and I had no pain. Nothing was wrong with me. I would have gone throughout my day. My appendix would have exploded and I would have died. It was the pain of waking up in the morning that went, something is wrong with me that caused me to go to the hospital, which then they did the test to figure out my appendix was going bad, cut it out of me before it exploded. And I'm still here today. I think an argument can be made that not all pain is evil, that God created us with the ability to feel pain to know when something was wrong. And so when you see the curse put upon Eve saying that your pain will increase, I think suggests the possibility of pain existing in the Garden of Eden, because again, pain is not all evil. God created us to feel pain so that we would know when something is wrong. And so uh, if he made it that way, that he can call that thing good. Now, one other argument that I heard that's not mentioned here in this video is that, but Genesis chapter one, the end of Genesis chapter one. So let's go back to Genesis one. The end of Genesis one suggests that everybody was vegetarian and therefore the animals were not eating each other. Genesis one, starting in verse 29, it says, and God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. Now, there's different uh, people that you can look at. And I think I opened up this on my other one. I have some quotes on my other computer here. John Collins writes in the book, Science and Faith, Friends or Foes. Uh, he says this about this verse. Even if we take Genesis 1, 29 to 30, as prescribing a strictly vegetarian diet for man and beast, it only applies to land dwellers and flying creatures. That is, it leaves out everything that lives in the water. But as a matter of fact, there's no reason to think that Genesis 1, 29 to 30 is either exhaustive, listing everything that they'll eat, or prescriptive, eat this and nothing else. There's no indication of a change in diet for animals anywhere in the Bible. And though we might argue that man wasn't to eat meat until after the flood, we still can't say what other animals ate. So again, I think this is where one person asked me on TikTok, how do you separate animal death and human death? I think this is one way that we can do that is, is you see here and it says, okay, everyone was vegetarian. Well, when you jump over to Genesis chapter nine, after the flood, it says to Adam and to humans, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. 
So to humans, there's then a change. Now you can eat the animals. But there's no change in diet for the animals. There's no place in scripture that says, and now animals can eat the meat or animals can start eating each other. Um, there's no change in that. And so when you come back to Genesis chapter one, again, it says, God said, I've given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree that seed was his fruit. Like I've given you this to eat. And I think a similar case can be made. It's like, if I say to my son, Hey, I've given you some broccoli to eat. It's not saying that broccoli is the only things that he can eat or that he can eat that I'm listing everything that is possible for him to eat. I'm not saying that he can only eat broccoli and nothing else. It's like, Hey, here's some broccoli for you to eat. Now, I think that there's another possible issue here with this kind of a very strict interpretation is that it says, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. Now, in some searches that I've done and some research that I looked into, there are seed bearing plants that are inedible, that we can't eat, that are poisonous, that are harmful to us. Now, maybe you argue that those Bad plants only came after the fall. Again, the text doesn't really say, I think that in some sense, it says thorns and thistles were produced. But it says, again, I think what God's saying is like, look, I've given you these plants to eat. And he's not making this exhaustive statement. This is everything that is possible for you to eat and the other animals to see. I don't think it's a prescriptive statement as uh, Collins states that eat this and nothing else. God's saying, look, I've given you all these plants, eat them. Now for humans, then later on Genesis chapter nine, that has changed animals, it's never changed. So I think, again, there's a different description. And so we look at the way that animals are created. It sure looks like they were created to eat meat. And so I think, again, I don't think that this explanation is justified to say this one verse, because it says, and to animals I've given you plant for food, that they only ate plants and nothing else. Um, so it's very possible. Again, Psalm 104, God gives the lion its prey. That scene is a good thing. It's shown the glory of God and how he cares for the animals. So who are we to say this is a bad thing from the beginning? All right. Now, all that together, hopefully um, I tried to make the case at least. Um, if there's questions that you have, and I can't read all the questions that are coming in as I'm doing this by myself. I don't know if there's something specifically addressed to me um, here. I'll have to look a little bit later. Um, but, um, again, I kind of push back a little bit on this challenge. It says we have to start by assuming that animals did not die. Now you have the burden of proof to prove that they did versus saying, where does scripture say animals did not die? It's if you're saying, well, it's because God creation was very good. You're reading a presupposition into what very good means. It's not there. If you're saying it's part of death. No, the scripture talks about human death, human separation from God. Romans chapter five talks about human death, does not talk about uh, animal death. Um, and so it doesn't kind of apply there. And so I think, again, this is something reading into the text. And so we see that the Testament, New Testament calls the death of Jesus good. It's a death. It's the shed blood that saves us from our sins. And the resurrection gives us new life, but it's the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood, right? That's what we celebrate in communion. We break the body of Jesus. We drink the cup that covers our sins, the body broken for us. This is a good thing. This is a beautiful thing, not just his resurrection. There's also a goodness of hell in one sense, in that it satisfies the justice of God and that it makes God good because he's not allowing evil to, to flourish and run rampant without any sort of moral restrictions or punishment. 
So there is a goodness to these sort of issues. And so that is why I think from a biblical reason. Now, I don't want to talk about the science necessarily, but I think the scientific reason is pretty clear that, that the fossil record shows that there was animal death before sin, if you accept an old earth view. And so uh, with that in mind, and I think with the biblical account, not speaking against it, but allowing for it, I don't see where a contradiction is for saying I think that there was animal death before human sin. That's kind of my conclusion there. Now, um, looking at then in his images, final kind of comments here. And there's one more clip that I want to show you guys. So don't go away. We've got about 15 minutes left. It says all these things are fundamentally incompatible with scripture. That was a claim that he made. And I hope that I've showed you, I've tried to make a persuasive case. I don't think this is incompatible with scripture. It is incompatible with a certain interpretation of scripture but I don't think it is incompatible with the plain reading of the text. If we don't read the certain things into the text, then I don't think we have any incompatibility. Now, then he says, some views allow for human death. Again, I'm not allowing for human death. I think that human death started as sin. That's what Romans 5, 12 clearly says. And it says, if then you take these views, as in his image states, um, they do damage to things like the atonement, sin, and why Christ had to come and die. And I would say, yeah. Absolutely. If you allow for humans to be living and dying before sin, then that does create a huge problem. But as I tried to show, there's a separation. There's a distinction of what scripture clearly says in Genesis 1. God says to Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Romans 12, death came to all men because all men sinned. There's a clear connection between human death and sin. And so saying animals died does nothing to the doctrine of the atonement. It does nothing to the doctrine of sin. Sin still happened, original sin with Adam and Eve. Then the atonement is necessary. Why did Christ have to come and die? Christ had to come and die because we are separated from him. We are dead in our trespasses and sin, and there is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. And we have to have his death on the cross to cover our sins so that we can be clothed in righteousness. This is the beauty of the gospel. So even here in the answers in Genesis article, where it says at the beginning, as I said, that the issue of death before sin is significant because, and this is quoted again, because it's a question of biblical authority and because the idea undermines the foundation of the gospel. I think that this is only true if we're talking about human sin and human death. If we separate that out, which I think scripture does, to where animals can die, but not humans, then it does not undermine the gospel at all. And again, I would say that those who say, look, this includes animal death. Where does the text say this includes animal death? It's being read into the text or assumed when something is not there. Now, lastly, um, the final quote that I want to, to mention here, um, the final part of the video, and this is the whole reason I made the video to begin with, is I think that there's a fundamental approach that some young earth creationists take that I think is problematic. And it's often an accusation made towards me and to other old earth creationists that I think is problematic, which is why I made my first response video a few months ago uh, to the Im his image video. But here's him saying it, uh, which is why I made the response that I did before. So here's the last part that I want to show you and discuss with the time that we have together. Here you go. If you are going to argue that the science is going to be placed as a interpreter of scripture, 
then scripture is no longer sufficient. You've damaged the perspicuity of scripture as well as damaging all these other doctrines. Science, if you use science as an interpreter of scripture, scripture is no longer sufficient. Okay, the question I have is sufficient for what? Sufficient for what? Scripture is sufficient for explaining salvation, who God is, for helping us reach and understand who Christ is and what he has done for us to, to explain the gospel so that we can be reconciled to God. Scripture absolutely is sufficient for that. Now, the, the comment I made in the original video was based on Joshua chapter 10, which I think is an example of, look, science helps us understand that, where it says that the sun stood still and the earth did not move. Now, we understand that the sun is not actually standing still. And so we read that verse and, and everybody, virtually everybody says, oh, this is using phenomenological language. It's language based on observation. To, do, to Joshua, the sun stopped moving, but we realize the sun isn't actually moving. It was that the earth stopped spinning. And so this is us using our scientific understanding. This We're not stationary and the sun is going around us and the sun literally stopped. We are going around the sun. Most likely, God stopped the earth from spinning. Um, and that is why the sun appeared to stop. And so we read that and we go, look, you're not dismissing the authority of scripture. You're just saying, look, based on what we understand, God's general revelation to us, I have a better understanding of this. I think another example that after I did that video, uh, I read as I was studying scripture. Here's another example where I think most people use science to ha have a better understanding of scripture, which we would never accuse them of undermining the authority of scripture. Uh, here it is right here, the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable, sorry, what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger in all the garden plants and uh, of all the garden lands and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. We know that the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Notice even as the same, it's not just the smallest of seeds in this region, it's the smallest of seeds all on the earth. Now there's two different ways that people understand this and, and, and explain this verse. Number one is to say, well, Jesus on the earth is saying about on that land, on the plot of land where Jesus is in the area that God, that he is in. It's like, there's no plants on the earth, right? The earth, the ground, the ground on which I'm standing, there's no plants right here. I'm not saying there's no plants over there, right? There's no animals on this property, that kind of thing. Uh, that's very possible that Jesus is talking about the area of Palestine, the context in which the people he's talking to understand, and the mustard seed was the smallest in that area. The other possible thing is that Jesus is using hyperbolic language. Man, I have the smallest classroom. Now, if a student goes and measures all the classrooms and says, ah, ha, ha, Mr. Polly, guess what? I found out. I measured every classroom. You don't have the smallest classroom. You lied to us. Would you really be like, oh my goodness, Mr. Pauly's a liar. He cannot be trusted. No, because I'm not making this statement that I have the smallest classroom as this literal factual hold me to it type of statement. I'm making this kind of hyperbolic language saying what? My classroom is really small. Same thing, man, I have the farthest walk to my car after work because I have to park across the street. Really? You think you have the farthest walk? There's people that walk way farther than you. When I was a child, I walked to school 10 miles both ways uphill in the snow. There's people that walk way farther than you. That's not the farthest walk. No, what I'm saying is that I walk really far. My car is parked across the street. It's not in the parking lot right here. That would have been nice. 
right? That's what we're saying. And, and so most people kind of understand one of these two things, probably more so maybe the second one, I don't know. Uh, but the only reason we do this is because we know at the face value reading of the text, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the earth. And so because of this knowledge that we gain through science, that the orchid seed is actually the smallest seed, we then go, okay, well, Jesus is not making this factual statement of all possible seeds, a scientific statement that we want him to be making. We recognize this as hyperbolic language, or that he's just talking about in the area, in the context of which people are understanding this. But I don't know, I don't know what in his image would say to this verse, but I don't know anyone that would say, look, by reading that and giving the explanation that I gave is somehow undermining the authority of scripture. It's not. Because if you take this at face value and you say, no, Jesus is, he said it's the smallest in all the earth, it's the smallest. Well, we know it's not. So what do you do? Jesus made a mistake? Jesus was wrong? No. We use general revelation. We use our minds that God has given us. We use the, the nature that God has created that we study to understand him more fully. We use this all the time in order to know other details more fully that then sometimes overlap with scripture to help us more fully understand what scripture is saying to us. We have to understand the context of scripture if we're going to respond. We have to understand the, the, the parables. We have to understand the genre that scripture is using. So when Jesus says, I am a door, we don't think he has handle and hinges. We recognize he's using, um, you know, poetic language. It's not literal. And so we don't take a literal interpretation of the text. We understand the text literally where it's meant to be taken literally and understand it figuratively where it's meant to be taken figuratively. Right? That is how we do the best at understanding what is God revealing to us here. And so, again, I kind of push back against this idea that I constantly hear and the challenge that has come to me a few times, which is why I kind of made these videos and wanted to have the conversation, is to say that we should never use science to help interpret scripture. If you ever use science to interpret scripture, you're saying that scripture is no longer sufficient. No, no way. God has given us scripture and God has given us nature. He's given us these two revelations. And there are times where our understanding of scripture is clear and it helps us reinterpret and understand nature better. There's times where our understanding of nature helps us understand what is said in scripture, all of which is God's revelation to us when understood agrees perfectly. To say that we can use a scientific understanding to understand scripture better in no way undermines the sufficiency and the authority of scripture, which is often claimed. And so my final argument, which prompted all of these discussions, which hopefully you have found interesting, and then I'm going to come to your live questions here at the end. So if you're listening still, uh, send those in, is this, if, if we can use our scientific understanding about the size of seeds to realize what Jesus is saying here in Mark chapter, what's the verse? Mark chapter four, without undermining the authority of scripture. And if we can understand how orbit works to understand, to better understand Joshua chapter 10, that the sun literally did not stop in the sky, but it appeared to Joshua that it stopped in the sky because that is what it would look like to him. And he didn't have an understanding of orbit. And, and you're using our scientific understanding of orbits to better understand the scripture without undermining the authority of scripture, why can we not also do that for Genesis chapter one? Why can we not also use our scientific understanding to gain a better understanding of what Genesis chapter one is saying without 
undermining the authority of the text. Now, I'm not saying because we can do it in Mark 4 and Joshua 10 that you have to do it in Genesis chapter 1. I'm just saying that why accuse people of throwing out the Bible, of undermining the authority of Scripture, of denying the Word of God, because they use science to help gain a better understanding of what God says in His Word when we do that other places. So if the text doesn't allow for it, then you don't allow for it, right? It's, it's, it's a case-by-case basis. I'm not saying always use science. It's not like, well, science says miracles are impossible. Therefore, all the miracles get thrown out. No, we have good reason to believe in the miracles of Scripture. So you're not always throwing these things out. But look, if Scripture allows for a long period of time in the days, which I gave two reasons at the beginning of this video for that, if Scripture allows for animal death before the fall, and then science says, look, I think that they were longer and there was animal death, then... Why can we not reconcile that to have a better understanding without accusing people of somehow denying scripture and throwing things out? So uh, that is hopefully uh, an understanding of how to approach this topic and respond to some of the objections that come up when, when kind of being faced with the challenge of, man, if I accept an old earth, I now have to bring on the consequences of this, which is animal death before the fall. How do I do this? Hopefully this kind of helped make sense of that. So uh, with that, guys, thank you so much for being here. Again, I'm going to try to come back. I'm going to try to do some stuff, more stuff with you. Again, if you have enjoyed this, you can share it with somebody. Uh, you can also help out. We're coming to the end of the year. If you want to support financially, that would be amazing. A lot of things are happening. And again, just love the people that want to come along and say, I want to be part of this ministry. I want to help you continue to do what you are doing. This is fun. This is exciting. I love doing it. I love being here with you. Again, there's other videos that are going to pop up that you can check out and that you can enjoy that you can share and again help other people see this because i know this is a big challenging difficult issue uh, maybe not everyone's gonna agree with me so let's have a conversation as we try to figure out what does scripture say both hopefully both sides wanting to say look we want to be faithful to the word of god we want to be faithful to what the text says and do our best to understand it rightly uh, we just have a different interpretation or different understanding and so we're trying our best and so let's try to figure this out together so with that i pray that you have a wonderful rest of your day god bless thank you so much for being here thank you for the questions and um have a wonderful thanksgiving if i don't get another video out before thanksgiving have an awesome thanksgiving yeah i pray that god blesses you guys and continue to be thankful and continue to think deeply about god and christianity because they are worth thinking about See ya, everybody. Just won't hesitate to follow your love.